This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome, and it is too great to be back in the chair. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer squad, and it's a really big day as we await the first federal budget in two years. Now, we've all seen the reports that there will be something for parents. The first steps to a national child care system Maybe more than the first steps, because uh, the word is that there will be about $2 billion towards that later today. And it is something that's been promised for 30 years. But uh, is it urgent now? And is there anything to kickstart national standards for long-term care? Is there any help for caregivers. We will get to all of that and all of the things that CARP is looking for. But first, it's our David Kravitz birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy And uh, we are actually trying to reach the birthday boy, but he seems to be a victim of uh, the problems at Rogers with cell phone coverage. And I've got to say that there have been problems with all of Rogers' other services intermittently over the last few weeks. So... um, as we wait to get David, Peter Mugridge is off, so uh, it, it's it's a squad of one for the moment. So let's bring in Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP. Hi, Bill. Oh, thanks. thanks, Libby. Welcome, uh, welcome back, and thank you for playing that. I tried to sing happy birthday at our staff meeting to David this morning, and he wouldn't let me. So I'm glad that you at least played it for him today. Okay. Well, I I think his uh, radio, if it is an over-the-air radio, an old-fashioned radio, is is probably working. I guess this just shows how dependent we all are uh, on all of that and uh, how everything uh, gets really messed up when it goes down. So, uh, Rogers, like, fix this, please. And and really, all of your service, all of your, may I say, very expensive service has been not working very well, certainly in my area, for weeks. Um, so, Bill, uh, what are you looking for in the budget? Well, what we're looking for and what we expect to hear are two very different things. Um, uh, we're not we're not getting any messages from the people we hear in Ottawa that there's going to be much in this budget again for seniors, and uh, that is really concerning. Seniors almost seem to have been forgotten. If you look at the at the pre-budget uh, uh, thinking on the weekend and all the media. Very, uh, very little uh, there for us. And one of the areas that really concerns us is uh, we're certainly supportive of the idea of uh, more support for child care. So uh, especially uh, women can get back to work who need to. But that totally forgets that so many of those women also give care to older family members and uh, relatives. And for them not to have the same kind of support if they must give care to a senior in their life is really inexcusable in our, in our view. Well, that's right. And, and a lot of women are, carry the main burden of being the sandwich generation, and, and they give care to both the younger well, generation and the older generation. And 
the burden of that care uh, often keeps them out of the workforce or certainly keeps them back from full participation. And what about that? I mean, you know, this child care stuff has been, you know, it's it's been promised and not delivered for 30 years, but, but the other stuff as well. Exactly. And uh, uh, care is care, no matter who you're you're giving it uh, to and why we should uh, eliminate help to those who give care to other generations in their uh, in their family and it's not just it's not just the older relatives and and friends they give uh, care to but it's also uh, uh people of all ages who have particular needs that need uh, total uh, total care and if you if you have a job where uh, you're not making enough money to pay for outside care and have to give the care themselves then you're all yourself then you're already uh, un, under pressures that are just uh, uh, impossible uh, for people and this isn't something new this is something that we have known about as you said for uh, 10 years we've had promise after promise but still nothing and unfortunately not expecting anything in today's budget in that regard. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, their choices, how much did their choices have to do with what the demands of the opposition might have been? Because uh, the NDP has said it will keep the government afloat, at least while the pandemic is raging. So uh, could they have been is that possible? And and the other thing, of course, is that, you know, the government is something like 10 points ahead. So, you know, they, they've said that they don't want to go to an election, but, you know, maybe they really do want to go to an election. And, and this is uh, in addition to being a pandemic budget. Uh, this is this is an election budget. Have yeah. you have you thought of that? Well, we haven't, and I think you make two very good points. One is that the NDP has continued to make noises about supporting the needs of older Canadians, but nothing that has really uh, uh, really supported that. And we would have expected them to get behind our call for support for caregivers of, of older Canadians, and they haven't, uh, they haven't done that uh, at all. And in fact, they have not. Uh, shown the kind of uh, support uh, and understanding that is uh, seniors who vote. In fact, uh, uh, none of the parties uh, have. They have not been paying the attention to uh, seniors voters that they did prior to the last election. And whether they're saving that up for uh, for pre-election time when they're going to come through with, with uh, making good on their promises uh, to get the vote, what they're doing right now is making seniors very angry with them. You know, most most seniors that we talk to, we talk to a lot of CARP members and, and their friends. And although this isn't entirely true, their perception is that early in the pandemic, they each got $300, $200 if you were really poor. And that's all that's gone toward them since then. All the money, all the support has gone to other sectors of the uh, of the uh, community and they're they're upset they're they're angry and they're very concerned about uh, uh, how they're going to show that anger in an election when and if it comes well uh yeah i mean my sense of it is uh you know also what about national standards for long term care any inkling that we might see some steps towards that Yes, there is. There is some. The, the government recently uh, has uh, engaged the Canadian Standards Association to come up with uh, uh, standards for home care for or long-term care for across the country. So whether that the there may be money announced today's budget that will pay for that uh, study by the Canadian Standards Association, and that may be a signal of a, of a first step toward, uh, uh, toward having some kind of standards. But, but it sounds to us like that could be a long uh, process and putting it in the hands of a, of a third-party agency uh, right out of the uh, health and the seniors area uh, means it sounds to us like they're not planning anything immediate, but they will be able to say, well, at least we've started. Oh boy, another study. Just what we all need, isn't it? 
Exactly. Uh, and, and we don't need another study in this case. We need action. And we have continually, uh, CARP has spoken to uh, directly to the uh, Minister of, uh, of Seniors and said that we're we're tired of waiting and, and having promises. Promises were made by the Liberals uh, in the last election that they would do something about long-term uh, care. And now, uh, at this point, they're just announcing a study. So this, uh, you know, and, and uh, I'm, you know, no matter how good the study is, studies take too long. What we need is action. Uh, what did she tell you when you brought that up? Uh, she said that she assured me that it was still a highest concern. She referred to the fact that uh, uh, long-term care is in her minister's mandate letter from the prime minister, so he's concerned about it too. And uh, we thanked her for her concern and said that uh, we that seniors across the country now were looking for action uh, based on that concern. Uh huh. Um, you know, in your view, do you think that do you think she actually has any clout around the cabinet table? <laughs> uh, I think, unfortunately, the minister of seniors is a is a fairly junior uh, uh, minister, and we haven't seen any uh, evidence to this point that uh, uh, that there's that, there, that she has a lot of clout. Uh, uh, you're right, but that. It, it may not be may not be because of her and the ministry. It seems the whole government uh, has taken seniors off their agenda. We haven't heard very much about seniors at all in the last few months, other than uh, the references around uh, a COVID and being so uh, so sad and concerned about what COVID has done to them. But in terms of, of the actions that, that we've been uh, uh, looking for, not, not just around health, but they made a couple of promises in their election campaign in terms of financial security for seniors that we've seen no results of yet. And there's no indication at this point. I mean, I've got my, my fingers crossed that uh, uh, you'll be able to tell me when we talk later tonight that I was wrong, that there were there is financial support for uh, seniors and, and concern about their financial security. But we're seeing uh, uh, none of that. They 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 promised two particular uh, uh, things. They said they would increase the old age security uh, by 10 percent for people. Uh, who were over 75. Yep, they said that, that a long a long time ago. So we'll have to see yeah. if they if they actually uh plan on making good. Uh Bill, as you say, we will be talking to you right after that budget comes down to see uh if we are pleasantly surprised by what is in there uh and in the meantime we'll let you go Bill Van Gorder. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Okay, let's bring in strategist Jason Leader, the president of Enterprise now, with a, a little bit more on what we should expect from that budget. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm great, Libby. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. So we, we've, had, uh, we've seen these leaks, uh, about $2 billion for childcare in the budget, that the budget is supposedly going to be focused on getting people back to work. Is that your sense of it? Yeah, I think so. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say it's really nice to be able to have There's a minority parliament. We haven't really had one. Sorry, I, I missed part of that. Can you repeat that? No, I, I was just saying it's uh, it's just nice to have a federal budget, Libby. Like we've yeah. been two years in, it's been a minority parliament. I don't think we've ever seen something like this before. So I think that is the thing. I think they're really going to be focused on um, focused on on women, focused on childcare, focused on healthcare. Um, you know, the things that people are really thinking about and thinking about caring caring about right now. Um, I, I don't know whether you, Libby, but I will say things have gotten so much worse. That it's going to be really tough for the federal government to bring in this budget, to be honest with you, because people just aren't concerned or they aren't thinking about anything other than vaccines, healthcare, and sort of, you know, when can I get back to normal? So it's actually a really hard time for them to be bringing in a budget. And, you know, they made their bed, but uh, here we are today. And it's, there's not much going on other than I'm locked in my house and I'd really like to get a vaccine. Uh, but uh, so how would you explain, I mean, at the beginning when, we started to see just what kind of a big mess we had made of the procurement 
and and uh, you know uh, that's not a partisan comment. Uh, people were really angry, but from what I understand, this government is still sort of ten points ahead of the opposition. Yeah, it's funny. You know, they've been they've been sort of hiding in the skirts of the premiers, right? And, and it's been smart political strategy. You know, you sort of just let they let Doug Ford go out and keep the good and the bad every day, and 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 we're in a really tough spot. And Mr. Trudeau, I mean. You see him once a month now, and, you know, that's sort of what you hear from him. So I understand, like, and the things that the federal government really screwed up, like really screwed up, they screwed three things up really badly, right? One was the border, one was vaccine procurement, and one was sort of getting help to business really quickly at the court tries to get it, and they figured that out after a while. And so those things are sort of in the, in the rearview mirror for the most part. And so the federal government feels, I think, like they're doing pretty well. And the truth is, it's just really hard, Libby, for an opposition politician right now, you know, to get any, any sort of, uh, you know, attention. Um, we just, we don't have the room in our, in our bandwidth, in our minds to care about what opposition parties think about. So whether that's the federal conservatives or the Ontario liberals or whoever, it's government time. It's not opposition time right now, right? So, um, you know, so we, it's, that's what we're caring about. That's what, we, that's what we're concerned about. And we just don't have the bandwidth. Okay, speaking of it's government time, so I'm really glad we're talking to a conservative strategist because uh, speaking of the Ontario government and what they did and what they did not do on Friday, and, you know, my question is, what were they thinking? <laughs> yeah, the the playgrounds was uh, was a was a screw up of epic proportions. That used more uh, more colorful language, but it's uh, it's a family show, right? Yeah. So the the uh, you know the, the playground stuff, a lot of the outdoor stuff. So here's the thing, and it, it's they've they've been riding reasonably high as well. Um, things have gotten a lot worse in the last month. And, you know, if you're in, in charge, you pay the price for that kind of thing. Uh, they made a couple of screw ups. I think the outdoor, uh, outdoor, um, activity stuff was a, you know, wasn't their best decision for sure. Um, and, and I will say, and, you know, here we are, we've been talking, I don't know if you've been talking much about, um, uh, about, uh, about, about sick days, for example, yeah. you've been hearing about sick days for a long, long time. So here we are. Like the irony here is that this is where I was talking about earlier about hiding in Doug Ford's skirts. So Doug Ford's been taking heat for two months on sick days. Well, the federal government has a program for that, and it's an insufficient program. It's not a very good program, and and problem across Canada, not just in Ontario. And they're asking for Justin Trudeau to improve his program. Now, today he's going to improve that program in sort of a I think you know really a, and he's going to sort of admit that the program that they put in place to deal with exactly this is actually insufficient or it's, or it's unwieldy and hard to work. So it's good to see, I think, but listen, this is, this is, we're in, people are just tired. It's been a, it's been a, a year. Each government's made a few mistakes. The Ford government, their problem was they made a couple of mistakes on the Friday of, you know, when everybody was sort of at their wit's end, but at least they, they fixed the playground mistake. That was a bit, that was a, that was not the smartest thing they did. And they, and I do admit, or I do like the fact that they sort of admitted defeat and reverse course quickly. I think that was good. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they didn't, first of all, they didn't entirely reverse course quickly because, uh, I can tell you that I have been inundated with petitions, uh, from my tennis friends asking me to sign a petition. I, I told them I'm a journalist. I don't sign petitions, but, uh, and, and golf courses. So they haven't even done that. But it, I mean, even today, Christine Elliott was uh, standing in the legislature saying they're listening to the science table and direct quotes of people from the science table saying, you know, just devastated by the lack of action on the things they said had to be done and action on stuff. I mean, it, it, it seems almost like, you know, your stomach hurts. I'm going to slap you upside the head. You'll forget about it. Yeah, I, I will say, Libby, this is where I think that, you know, so first of all, I'm a huge golfer. I play tennis, too, and I, I'm not that uh, not that happy that I can't do those things. So first of all, that's number one. Number two, it is inconsistent um, with the message of everyone has to stay home. This is so serious that we actually need to do things that that but you but you can go play tennis and golf. That is inconsistent. It's an inconsistent message. So people don't like government being inconsistent. This is a time when they've chosen some consistency and we might be a little bit about it and why they got there. And three, and this is the most important thing, some of the scientists and doctors that you're talking about who are on the science table, they've been calling for essentially a complete shutdown. And I mean a complete shutdown for months now. 
So I think it's a bit rich, to be honest with you, for some of them to go to their Twitter handles and say, oh, I wasn't talking about that, or I wasn't talking about this. I was talking about other things. And so, like, the truth is, most of the members of that size table, though certainly the ones that are on are essentially asking for a full shutdown. And yes, that includes tennis and golf and all sorts of things. So you can't sort of ask for one thing and then say, well, that's not really what we meant. So I do have some sympathy for the government. If everyone is asking you for a full shutdown, you might, they might get what you want, frankly. Well, I mean, uh, they, what they have all been saying is that, that you need measures to curb what's going on in those uh, essential and allegedly essential workplaces. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the sick days. And, you know, you said maybe we'll see something from the, the federal government. But here's another thing that I just don't understand from from the Ontario government. It's not like they have been exercising any fixed goal restraints. They've been spending vast amounts of money. So I don't understand why they didn't do something about this when it became clear that this was a big source of the problem. Yeah, I mean, sick days, I, I mean, we could we could do a whole show on sick days and what the implications of it are long term. So the, the reason why people don't, governments don't act, remember, like, the Ontario Liberals put in two paid days of sick days, um, in the, at, you know, at the end of their tenure yeah. after f- 15 years. And they were that was sort of like a, a you know, last gasp promise for them that, 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 that got overturned. But you know who was paying for those sick days, right? It's small business. So small and medium sized business. So it's easy when you say, "Hey, Amazon should pay people for their for their sick days." The truth is, if you're a if you're if you've got a union agreement, you've got this anyway. And so it's it's non unionized workers, which is mostly small and medium sized business. Or so Amazon. Pardon me, sir. Or Amazon. Yeah, but Amazon Amazon has Amazon and, and these big companies. They have a lot of sick days built into their agreements. What we're really talking about is non unionized staff. Um, in a lot of these small and medium sizes. So we're asking, I understand the, the jam that government is, and trust me, I actually think that we should do something to have small, to, to have some sort of sick days. And I think the federal government's program, it's indefensible that they brought in a program for a billion dollars and was only able to use a few hundred million because they made the rules too difficult. I don't understand why we would have a program that isn't working. And we would say, instead of create, instead of fixing that program, we should create a new one. But I do understand the point, And I actually agree with the point. Testing, tracing, vaccinating, and some ability to take a day off if you're sick is the key to getting it under control in these essential workplaces. And I think we will see the federal government step in on that and fix the program today. What do you think uh, the damage, I mean, you know, at the beginning of all of this, the provincial government, uh, they were, you know, people people were really on side with them thinking they were doing a good job. That has all reversed. What do you think the uh, long-term damage to them is? It's um, it's it's not insignificant. So they went into this. They went into this um, program these last couple of this last year or so, going in on a, on a fairly low point. Right, the premier's personal approval ratings. They're much above where where that point was. In fact, quite the opposite. Most people, regardless of what you thought of various measures, most people thought Doug Ford A cared and B was trying. So that's number two. Number three, they took a bit of a hit last week. No doubt about it. Uh, people are done with this and. They're unhappy about any sort of perceived, you know, inequity or, you know, lack of cohesion or consistency. So, um, but the truth is, remember what the next the next um, election is about. It's going to be, do you want Doug Ford, Stephen Del Duca, or Andrea Horvath? And Andy, Andrea Horvath had a few chances. She's never really been able to get across the hump. Mr. Del Duca, you know, most Canadian, or most Ontarians will be meeting him for the first time the next time they see him. And Mr. Ford, he's going to be... He's going to be a well-known commodity, uh, and people are either going to sort of like him or, or not like him, but he's going to have to be able to sort of make sure that he wears that brand of, did an okay to pretty good job. And that doesn't look so easy today, but it looks better a week ago. And with, you know, once people start getting vaccinated, pretty easily. But, but Jason, it, it's, it's not just what happened. Uh, this last weekend. It's not just the sick days. I mean, and it's possible that people will forget because our society is just so profoundly ageist. But um, despite all the huffing and puffing and care and emoting, uh, the, it, he did this, the government did not do what was necessary 
to avoid that devastating second wave in long-term care. They didn't. They didn't want to spend the money. Um, well, I don't know. That the, well, I mean, I mean, again, we talk about this all day, too, right? Money, I mean, they've spent, they've spent a 40 billion, they've got a $40 billion deficit. It's the biggest deficit in Ontario history by like a factor of, you know, X. It's, it's massive. Money is, you know, the problem with staffing for the most part and a, and a system that had temporary staffers moving all over the place and spreading the virus and some homes that had, you know, let's face it, three to four people in a room and it's sort of impossible to stop the spread. So you have these like, structural problems. You're not wrong, though. The, the, the issues that this, like if you think about the, the sort of big negativity over the course of the last year, Libby, it's order, it's vaccine procurement, it's long-term care, and it's inconsistency in regulation. And yeah, they're going to wear some of that. And, you know, they certainly made some mistakes. The federal government, again, huge mistakes as well. So, I mean, governments, there's going to be a reckoning. Uh, question is, do we give our leaders, and I, I use that broadly, the benefit of the doubt, or, or don't we? And then that's where the people are going to have to decide. Okay, Jason, before I let you go, so uh, we know we're looking for child care. There's going to be some kind of subsidy for making new hires. Uh, what else uh, of big significance uh, are we looking for later today? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think they'll, 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 when they were putting this budget together, Libby, their idea was bring in the budget today, walk across to the governor general in the next couple of days, people are going to start being vaccinated and they're going to call an election. That was their, that was their idea. That was the plan a month ago. That is not the plan today, given what's happening out there. So they're reprofiling and they've got to scramble a little bit and rewrite a little bit of how they're presenting some of the things that they're doing. So healthcare, you know, some other things that they're, they're thinking about, childcare for sure. Yeah, there's going to be some green things for sure in terms of green investments and, uh, and climate change initiatives as well, as well, Libby. But for the average people out there, I think that you're going to have to look through, if you're sort of a woman who's been really hurt by this recession and this, and this, and this pandemic, there's probably going to be some very targeted measures for you. If you're looking to start a green business, some very targeted measures. If you're in the healthcare business, some very targeted measures. So it's going to be, I mean, they're going to spend a lot of money. Um, the question is, is it the right money? I guess that's what we're going to be talking about and debating for the next couple of weeks. Okay. Thank you so much, Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president of Enterprise. Appreciate it. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, people, and, and just a reminder, I know we're all putting up with phone lines that either don't work or don't work very well, uh, and um, Rogers, please fix that as soon as you can. But we are going to continue after a break. We're going to be talking to a number of the doctors that we check in regularly uh, and epidemiologists, and we will have that when we return. And let me give out the numbers in case you in the audience have questions. The situation is so fluid. It keeps changing. It is not good. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The situation is dire. The latest modeling released Friday prompted the government to act, but instead of doing what medical and civic leaders have been urging for weeks, paid sick leave for essential workers and perhaps even closing some operations that really don't deserve the essential designation. They closed playgrounds, golf courses, and tennis courts and increased police powers. Now, they walked some of that back in less than 24 hours. And there is one bit of good news. As of tomorrow, anyone over 40 will have access to the AstraZeneca vaccines, Vaccines that have been staying on the shelf, I believe, because of the confused and ill-timed communication around the risks. So where does that leave us in our struggle with the third wave? Let me give out the numbers if you have questions about what you can and cannot do. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. 
1-800-273-4740. And now let's bring in Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious disease and infectious infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Amol Verma, staff physician in general internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hello, all, and thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Hi, thank you. Okay. Hi, so, Hi. So uh, let us uh, start with the hospital-based physicians. Uh, Dr. Verma, how are things going at St. Mike's? Yeah, thanks, Libby. I mean, we are, things are, things are okay. I think you're right to convey the seriousness, you know, using words like dire. We are facing difficult times at the same time. And our, 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 you know, intensive care units are very full. Our wards are busy. But I think an important message that I want to convey is hospitals are functional. Hospitals are working. And if people are sick or having urgent symptoms, please come to the hospital. Don't think that you need to stay home to save a bed for someone else. Uh, we know that in the first wave of the pandemic, people with heart attacks and strokes stayed home and suffered and got sicker. And that need not be the case. So if you have serious medical illness, please come to the hospital. Your doctors are there. They are ready to take care of you. Um, but of course, at the same time, yes, things are very busy and challenging in the hospital sector right now. Okay, to to back up your message, uh, full disclosure on my part, and uh, Dr. Vaisman, uh, big shout out to UHN. Uh, people will know I've been away for a couple of weeks. The reason I was away was that I had a medical emergency. I went to emergency at Toronto General Hospital. I got excellent, wonderful care. I was in the hospital for about a week. Uh, and uh, everything is uh, much better now. And um, so, yeah, just backing up that message. If you have an emergency, you should go to the hospital. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, so uh, how are things going there? You know, one of the things I, I was also amazed that, you know, there wasn't really, from what I could see, a, a sense of, you know, panic or, or anything like that. Things were uh, on the emergency basis, kind of under control. Yep. I, I think, uh, as Dr. Verma mentioned, that things are, um, the pressure is definitely on and things are steadily going to get worse, but certainly all that medical care can be provided. And that's a lot in part due to the leadership and also because many of our frontline staff have, you know, rolled up their sleeves and have done their part to help out wherever is needed. Now the, the mindset has changed and uh, the public needs to be aware that the mindset has changed in hospitals to redirect as many resources as possible to look after the patients who are coming in or with COVID, and that has resulted in a significant amount of stress on the system. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly know that there's a s stress on the people working there, and, you know, when you, when you hear uh, about beds or anything like that, uh, you know, you need, especially in ICU, you need very qualified people to staff those beds. It's, it's not everybody that can do that, um, you know, and, and we keep hearing these stories about people being redirected far away from their families, which is very, very difficult. Uh, Dr. Furness? I think that adds a huge layer of stress on, on to people who are already extremely concerned. And we know that people who are most likely to get sick and be in that position are also essential workers. They're marginalized. They're racialized. I think this would be absolutely disorienting, and it's tragic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to uh, take a call from Simone in Parkdale. Hi, Simone. Are you there? Simone in Parkdale. Uh, okay, we don't seem to have Simone in Parkdale, uh, but she did have a question about elective surgeries, and those are surgeries that were planned uh, in advance, and, and I believe those are being cancelled. Who wants to take that? I can start, Libby, um, and I'm sure others uh, can chime in. Um, so that's right. So first, you know, I don't love the word elective. I think most people undergo surgery because it's needed for their health. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're talking about surgeries that are uh, less urgent uh, or non-urgent, um, and those indeed have been 
uh, delayed or postponed in order to preserve our intensive care unit capacity in order to, in some cases, make sure that we have both the staff and the physical space available to take care of critically ill people. And so, yes, I think many people will be experiencing delays and interruptions in their care. And this is, you know, unfortunately, one of the most dire uh, consequences of an out-of-control pandemic is the knock-on effect on everyone else's health. Okay. Um, Dr. Furness, on Friday, uh, we saw the response from the provincial government. They closed playgrounds. They closed tennis courts. They closed golf courses. So in your view, what is safe to do outside? Because, uh, I mean, they reversed course on some of this. We hear from the experts that, you know, there is, there's not really a place where the risk is zero, but the risk is, is uh, really not that bad outside. If you have a choice between being around others inside or outside, to me, there's no choice. Outside is much less risky. I think it's better to say less risky than safer, because that R can kind of fall off that word. And we need to be concerned with the new variants, because there have been case reports, many of them, of people attending things like backyard barbecues, and then multiple exposures, multiple cases. And if you think about what happens in a barbecue or that kind of event, there's some alcohol, there's some hugging, there's some maybe some singing, some talking loudly over the tunes, sharing of condiments, like that social interaction that is quite concerning. And yeah, you can get sick outside because that's been happening. That's very different from being out in a golf course, physically distanced, taking a walk in a park, or having your kids on the swings in a playground, right? Like swings, if, if swings aren't safe, then nothing is. So I think we, we need to try and educate people, and this has not happened well enough, to say these are the kinds of activities, being up close, sharing things, sharing air, those are the sorts of things that even outside appear to be a big risk given the new variants and how contagious they are. But I want people outside. I absolutely do. What about playing tennis, uh, wearing your mask until you play and on the way back? What about playing tennis? Well, I think tennis is another example of there's no way that two people on opposite sides of a tennis court outdoors, I think, could infect each other. That would be unimaginable. But yes, you have to think about the uh, interactions before and after. Uh, if there's a change room, um, your method of transportation to get there. So you have to look at the whole picture. But the act of tennis itself, I think, would be uh, an excellent example of a good, healthy, outdoor, low-risk activity. Okay, well, um, there's there's a huge petition that's going to arrive at Doug Ford's uh, at Doug Ford's doorstep, and uh, you know, in the summer before there were the variants, I we we played tennis with very strict controls, like no socializing, mask wearing uh, before and after, and and um, you know, honestly, I think there were a couple of infections, but they were very minimal. Um, uh, Doctor Verma, do you have anything to add to that in terms of, of people and and outside? What about you know, you're walking. There are some places where people do congregate outside. Like they're just throngs of people. What should you do if you're out for a walk and there are a lot of other people doing the same? Yeah. I, so I agree with everything that Dr. Furness said around the risk of transmission outdoors is lower and we all need to keep ourselves sane and healthy. I also think that it's important to you know, uh, think about people who maybe don't have a lot of space indoors or don't have their own backyard and live in high-density areas, apartment buildings and such. And and getting outside to a public space is crucially important, you know, whether you have children or pets. Um, and so I think the outside we have to think about as a space that is relatively safer, much, much safer than indoors. Um, and, you know, small transient interactions like walking past someone, it's very unlikely that you're going to contract COVID that way. Um, but if you're close to other people in close proximity uh, and, uh, you know, for long periods of time outdoors, there is still a risk of transmission. You can always wear masks in that situation and it's recommended to do so. And so I think, you know, people can use their common sense that, you know, frankly, around, you know, stay, don't get too close to other people, but enjoy the outdoors because it's what, you know, we, we definitely need to, to keep our own mental health and physical health up. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Rachel in Brampton. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Olivia. How are you? Fine. How are you? 
Good. Uh, my my question is, I was expecting this from uh, the government uh, on Friday. Um, the curbside, non-essential, uh, because I work in retail, curbside within the employees, last month we had about six days. Really? Right? What, um, yeah. what, do you work in a very large retailer? Big, big, large retail. We have curbside, but employees are very relaxed because no customers inside, right? And I'm just saying, either uh, vaccinate everybody in the retail who works in retail because we have about six cases, and that you know, even though it's closed and it's curbside. Mm-hmm. And well, are you are you worried about going into work? Yeah, I am. I haven't been back almost two months. Oh. Because I have I have underlying condition and I I don't feel safe to be to be to I mean I took the first vaccine I'm okay but I'm just even that I'm like I I don't think uh, first of all the you know people are not uh, respecting the uh, the safety don't keep the distance and we working very close without sometimes taking out their mask and all that stuff so. I don't know why they didn't even talk about this. Uh, they they closed the uh, outdoor and everything, but the main transmission is really people working in an essential area like warehouses and retails and things like that. People are not getting vaccinated. Okay, Rachel, so. thank you for that. Thank you. Um, what about what about Rachel's point, Doctor Vaseman? Uh, do you see a big uh, threat? She's saying that. In environments where there are no more customers, it's, it's actually, you know, maybe the workers who are taking a more relaxed attitude than they should be. Well, I think every one of these places needs to be examined carefully to make sure that they are safe for people to be in close contact with one another and then wherever possible to put in measures to prevent that. But I think also an important point here is that if um, the government deems or you are deemed to be an essential service, then the people who are asked to work in these places during these lockdowns should be the ones who are pushed up the list in terms of vaccination priority, whereas those businesses that are asked to close because they're not deemed essential, then, you know, the vaccination priority changes for those people. It's it's a little unfair to say to people that you have to go to work but not give them the vaccine available to make them as safe as possible. And if you work in a specific setting, as this person describes, that may be considered risky, then changes should be made in your workplace to make sure that it is safe to go in there to make sure the rules are being followed. Okay, I'm going to want to get into that, uh, but we have to take another break first. So let's do that. And we will be back with uh, our panel of doctors to drill down on all of that. And whether the province is starting to get the whole vaccine priority thing right, or are they still off the mark when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We've been talking about the deployment of the vaccines. We're just uh, starting to get to that conversation, and I will get to the phones. So, uh, Dr. Furness, uh, in your opinion, has the province started to get it right? They have deployed some vaccines to the so-called hotspot areas, and they've also opened up the AstraZeneca vaccine to people over 40. Part of the issue there is that uh, those things were not getting an uptake because of the reports of these very, very rare clotting events. Dr. Furness? It's a complicated landscape. I think what concerns me the most is we've known since last year, because we understand vaccine hesitancy, that the marginalized, racialized communities that are excluded from health care, that are excluded in so many ways, we're not going to elbow their way to the front of the line. And especially when people are not being paid to go and get their vaccine on top of that mistrust, you need to go mobile. You need to go in the communities. And there were a couple of photo ops with a mobile truck or two, and it was really a, a styrofoam prop to say we're doing this and they weren't. Are they doing it now? They're starting to. But to me, that's unforgivable because that's not something we had to discover. That's something we already knew. The AZ vaccine, because a lot some people are saying, oh, I'm not sure I trust that one. They're trying to give it to they're trying to give that one to us poor folks. That's where I think opening up the the age restriction to try and get privileged white folks like me 
to get that vaccine, I think that's a great thing. Uh, I wouldn't have necessarily opened it up all the way to 40 because I think there's going to be a, you know, I think that's just going to be more mayhem. I, I might have done it a bit more gradually, but I think allowing someone like me to set an example to say, I'm rolling up my sleeve for that vaccine because the first vaccine is the best vaccine. And, and I think being able to say that over and over, that's really important. So I, I feel positive about that. Okay, you know what? An- another thing of, of full disclosure. So uh, I have family members that are older. Uh, one who is actually 80 managed to get a shot of Moderna or whatever. Now, uh, this was before the provincial thingamabob opened. And, and I kind of, uh, you know, take an active role in the healthcare. And I literally corralled my family members who were 75 and over and next in line for, uh, Pfizer, Moderna. And as soon as that, the 65 plus opened up, I took them to a pharmacy and they got AstraZeneca because in my opinion and still my opinion, and I have since got an AstraZeneca shot, you know, with variants floating around, why wait? So, uh, you know, if that's an example, uh, and these are people who would have been next in line for the others because of their age. Uh, so uh, I I agree. And, and um, Dr. Vaseman, I don't know. I think that, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's important not to in- interfere with science, but I think NASI's timing on all their various reviews, I mean, surely they should have understood that it would have an impact on vaccine hesitancy. Yes, I think it was quite unfortunate, the timing of their statements, first regarding the age cutoffs, and secondly, uh, now with the uh, issue regarding the clotting. I think as the days go on, we see even more and more how much of a public health emergency the, the pandemic is. It's, it's it's hard to overstate that, but it's it's been occurring for so many days now that the vaccine rollout needs to be as good as it possibly can be, and that includes using all available vaccines. The AstraZeneca can quite literally save people's lives, people as young as 40, so that I think it's definitely a good idea to lower that vaccination cutoff down to that age and as fast as possible to get as many people as possible. And, and, and you know, I think it, it's not even just poor people. I've, I've uh, heard from some of my friends and from callers on this show who are hesitant about AstraZeneca. And what I say to them is, go to your medicine cabinet. When was the last time you read the risk factors for whatever drug or drugs you happen to be taking without giving it a second thought? Uh, and and you will find that there are possibilities. Uh, every every medication you take carries a risk. Am I am am I wrong, Doctor Verma? You're not wrong at all, uh, Libby. And I think you know it's one of those things where we tend to internalize those risks when it's medications that we're familiar with, and there has been a you know certain aspect of really blowing out of proportion the risks that are associated with these vaccines, just to put it in context, the risk in Canada has been reported as one of those blood clotting events for every 250,000 people who receive a vaccine, right? So by any measure, these are remarkably safe interventions. Um, Now, I think people have been right to balance the risk of the vaccine against the risk of COVID in very young people in whom the risk of COVID is relatively lower, right? Um, But personally, I think people in the youngest age groups, you know, we're talking 20s and 30s, should be able to make that decision for themselves rather than, you know, having that be dictated down to them. Nevertheless, I think opening up the vaccine to more and more people is very useful. And I think it's clear that even in these age groups, the benefits uh, far outweigh the risk. Okay, I'm going to try uh, to take a call here. We've got Jerry in Richmond Hill. Hi, Jerry. Jerry, are you there? Jerry, one more chance. Are you Hi there? there? Yes, go I'm ahead. Yeah. Okay, I have a situation here. and put my phone in because I wanted to read it to you. I have a family of five. Uh, the 18-year-old was uh, negative as of Easter weekend. Uh, a week later, mom and dad, positive. However, the, two days later, the one who was tested positive uh, is now considered uh, out of isolation period. He's still contagious. Now, the the father's now in hospital. He's supposed to be ending his 14-day period today. So 
and my niece has MS, so we're concerned about her. Now, there's two children there, a 13 and a 21-year-old. They're negative. However, they have to stay in isolation until the 25th of April. Now, this is where we're all confused. Can the three who have it get get the vaccine? Okay, the three who have had it or who have it? Uh, who I think- have it. Yeah, have it. I think there's a waiting period. I'm going to let the doctors answer while I let you go, Jerry, okay? Okay. Okay, uh, what is the answer to that? Who wants to take that? Uh, So currently there isn't a specific guideline about when people who have had COVID should get vaccinated against. Various uh, institutions are using various guidelines for that. Technically, you can have the vaccine as soon as you recover from COVID. However, likely it makes the most sense to wait a certain period of time in order to get a boosting effect. Certainly people who have had COVID are recommended to receive a vaccine. However, the timing of that is not yet clear based on the best available evidence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, I'm going to try to fit one more in. Donna in Guelph, can you ask your question quickly, please? Yes, Libby. Um, I listened to Dr. Iris uh, Gorfinkel last week on your uh, program, and she had mentioned that if you were over 75, you should have that second vaccination. The second shot? Yes. And she said Dr. Isaac Bogosh would uh, agree with that. Now, I called my doctor, but they said there had to be a criteria. You either had to be a cancer patient uh, taking chemotherapy or a transplant or something like that. So can you help me out there? Or? Okay. Uh, Donna, I'm going to let you go and let the doctors answer quickly. So if you're over 75, are there are there situations where you can get your second shot uh, in, in the uh, time suggested by the manufacturer? Dr. Verma, do you know? So... Our, I mean, our uh, uh, guidelines, our provincial guidelines have, as, as the caller rightly suggested, uh, focused on a set, subset of, of patients who have certain high-risk conditions, which suggest that they're at higher risk of developing the infection between two shots. Outside of that, I'm not aware of whether there are, uh, you know, age-related criteria at this point um, uh, for access to the sort of shorter interval between the shots. I don't know if Dr. Furness or Dr. Faisman are aware of it. So, so it's it's cancer patients, transplant patients, people. Uh, is that it, Dr. People Furness? who have immunosuppression is my understanding. Uh huh. And uh, you have to show proof of that, but there's not an age-related thing. That's correct. It's based on those pre- pre-existing conditions at this point. Okay, uh, we've got to wrap things up. Uh, how about if I give everybody 10 seconds with what you want to leave us with, starting with Dr. Vaisman? Uh, I think everyone needs to realize that there's a, definitely a crisis situation going on in the hospitals, and everyone needs to do their part in order to prevent further transmission. But as Dr. Verma mentioned earlier, it's definitely safe for people to come if needed. Dr. Verma? We, there will be an end to this. It's a couple of more months we need to get through you know, reduce our contacts, work together, get vaccinated, and there will be an end to this. The, it's always darkest right before dawn. Okay, Dr. Furness. People who've had one shot should not see that as a license to take risks in terms of exposure. You can still get it. You can still get very sick. It's been documented. Wait. Let's wait until community transmission drops. Let's wait for that second shot. Okay. Excellent advice from all of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman, Dr. Amal Verma, and Dr. Colin Furness. Appreciate your time. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.